0: Checking out college football on the West Coast. This is Get Off My Pylon, a look at the Pac 12 and more. Part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. Here's your host, Matt Zemek. Welcome to the latest edition of Get Off My Pylon College Football Podcast. Part of the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Podcast Network. I'm Matt Zemek. He's Alex Blau. Chopping it up after Showdown Saturday in the Pac 12 and Looking ahead to, you know, the the final few matchups of the Pac-12 football season, uh, we got as much drama as we possibly could have hoped for, if not more than that. Like, we had an overload. It was was basically we had four servings of Thanksgiving dinner football drama style in the Pac-12. Games that definitely lived up to the billing, definitely gave us a lot of entertainment. They were the two most important games of the week in college football. In terms of, you know, teams being on a relatively equal footing. Now, we had drama, you know, outside the Pac-12 in terms of Illinois Michigan. But, you know, Michigan was supposed to win that game big. It turned into a surprisingly dramatic contest. But in terms of teams on an equal footing, fighting for conference championships, fighting for a spot in the conference championship game, there was no conference that had games as big as the Pac-12. And so we got maximum drama-rama. USC 48 UCLA 45 in the evening game and then late night in Eugene, Oregon digs out a rugged, messy, but very, you know, impressive and uh and very inspiring from a duck perspective 20 to 17 win over the Utah Utes. Uh Alex before I get to you on these games, just want to tell uh, our listeners here on Get Off My Pylon that Utah has not been eliminated. You, know, you might think that Utah has been eliminated. Not so. And there's actually a very realistic—not going to say likely—but a very realistic scenario that gets the Utes to Las Vegas. That's because USC's win knocked UCLA out of contention for any spot. And you know UCLA beat Utah, so because UCLA is cleared out of the way and cannot be part of any tiebreaker, Utah could get into a multi-team tie and have a path. So that is why. Utah has not been eliminated. Also, Washington, because of its win over Oregon, is not fully eliminated uh, from this race. So, wanted to get that point across before we dive into these two games on Showdown Saturday. Alex Blau, just your general reactions to what you saw in the Pac-12. You can start with either game. You can just deal with both. The floor is yours.
1: Well, it didn't disappoint. You're right. This weekend lived up to
0: all the hype. All the expectations.
1: And only one thing is for sure, and that's USC is going to Vegas. Utah still in it. Oregon doesn't have a strong grasp on the second spot yet. And uh, and UW is sneaky up in there. You know, it's interesting, especially after this week, we have seen USC jump to number five. Uh, I've seen a lot of Twitter, especially East Coast Twitter, say oh, frauds they're in a terrible conference ridiculous in the past even you know last season sure this season the Pac-12 is as has been a dominant conference when it comes to top ranking teams this season uh and, and and this Saturday did not disappoint uh USC UCLA the rivalry was back big time uh you know I called it Matt Zemek. I said DTR stop him on the run you make him throw four turnovers not great stuff uh alex grinch had a second half resurgence because i know in the first half there were usc fans clamoring for him to you know pull a lane Kiffin and just leave him mid-game except i guess not post-game just mid-game fire him uh but they turned it around and then and then you saw oregon utah you know not as high scoring but uh but the
0: it was a different yeah. sport basically Almost entirely, yeah. Uh, well, 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 let's talk about the Alex Grinch resurgence. I mean, it's not as though USC was playing great defense and, you know, UCLA did wind up scoring 45 points. But here's the thing, Alex. One of the great coaching moves of Alex Grinch's season at USC, A, putting Corey Foreman on the field for the last drive, and B, having him drop back in pass coverage. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. Uh,
1: it, it, you yeah. know, all the
0: scenarios of all the scenarios for any USC fan. If you've been following USC this year, you know Corey Foreman, elite, you know, very highly touted recruit, Clay, recruited by Clay Helton and Dante Williams. So they bring him to USC, and they're hoping, you know, that he's going to be, you know, a, just a gigantic pass rushing monster. Got practically nothing from him last year, and of course that was because you know Helton got fired. It was a mess. Dante Williams taking over a sinking ship. Todd Orlando doing a terrible job as the defensive coordinator in a lame duck situation. So Foreman was not set up to succeed. All right. We, we fast forward to this year. All right. Now you got Lincoln Riley. Now you got Alex Grinch. Now's the time for Corey Foreman to produce. Got nicked up by some you know minor to modest injuries. You know, wasn't able to practice nearly as much as he or the coaching staff would have liked. So like he wasn't dogging it. He wasn't being lazy but his health wasn't there. And then the learning curve didn't really quite come around. Didn't log a ton of snaps just hasn't been on the field very much. And so, you know, USC fans just begging for him to do something of real significance. And then <laughs> he seals yeah. the UCLA game in pass coverage. You know, he was supposed to be this edge rushing, edge rushing monster. He drops back in pass coverage and it wasn't an ordinary interception. He had to, re- he had to jump up. No, it was a heck of a with play. His hands. It was, a, it was a heck of a play. play. It was a great play. So Alex Grinch, Hey, having the foresight and the vision to know, Hey, this guy actually might be evolving as a player. I'm not just going to throw him into the fire on the last drive of the game against DTR and UCLA in a shootout with everything on the line. I'm going to use him in pass coverage. And that decision changed the trajectory of USC's season. It did. It did. And,
1: and something else we're not mentioning from this game is Caleb Williams really solidifying his spot atop the Heisman campaign, Heisman uh,
0: rankings. It's him and CJ Stroud. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is, and, those and, two and are left standing. They're they're the ones who can make the the remaining statements, especially with Hendon Hooker being injured uh, for Tennessee. Like he, you know he he was probably the leader going into the weekend. He's definitely not the leader coming out of the weekend, and you know he's not going to be able to play in the and, yeah. There won't be an over. SEC championship game for him to play. Meanwhile, and that's the other part of USC winning. USC gets a thirteenth game. USC is going to be part of conference championship weekend. So Caleb will get his statement on Friday, December 2nd. Stroud, if he beats Michigan, will play a conference championship game on Saturday, December 3rd. And that's probably what's going to decide the whole shebang.
1: It'll uh, it'll certainly be
0: interesting that it's come down to these two so
1: late in the game, too, that we kind of were looking at the entire season. But uh, we had so many people. We had DTR pop up. We had Nicks pop up. Uh, you know, Bryce Young was in the conversation at the very beginning for just a little bit. Uh, but but it's these two in the very end, I and mean, we're going to have to see how the championship weekend treats both of them. Uh, but yeah, if it's so anything like – if it's anything like Caleb's been putting up, even in the losses, uh, it'll be fun to watch for sure.
0: Yeah, so, okay, we've taken this little Heisman detour. Let's continue on this path before we get back to reviewing USC, UCLA, and Utah, Oregon, Alex. Um, if – let's just lay out the hypothetical. So, Stroud gets Michigan. Caleb gets Notre Dame, so both huge national rivalry games. Hypothetical. If they both play awesome in these games, and they both play awesome in the conference championship games, so basically they both set a very high standard. You know, I mean, this means that Ohio State and USC will both be in the playoffs. Who I think it Who goes, wins the Heisman under that scenario.
1: I think it goes. You got to look at more than just the basic stat lines. Sure, you can see CJ Strouds put up three touchdowns a game, but you know how many of those are screens he just gave to the talented halfback that took it forty yards. I, there's a difference in their style of play. Uh, Ohio State is 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 a big team that it, it, it requires the wideouts around them to make plays. In open space, whereas USC is is really run through Caleb. I think we've seen that there's no team in college football that has relied so much on one player like the Trojans and Caleb Williams. I think you got to get in the edge for that reason.
0: You know, it's true. Like, you know, Stroud won a moderate shootout, you know, not not a full on shootout. It was 42 30 with Ohio State scoring a defensive touchdown in the final uh, minute. Uh, but, yeah, Caleb Williams wins a 48-45 shootout. He's also won a 45-37 shootout against Arizona, and that's something that his peers haven't had to do. They have not had to win games when opponents have been scoring north of 35 points. And even, so, even
1: when you look at how they played and lost to Utah, he
0: he played great. Absolutely. Yep, that's totally true, totally true. Um, And Stroud, you know, didn't really have a very special game against Notre Dame. So if Caleb Williams plays well against Notre Dame, that is a separator for Caleb uh, uh, directly against C.J. Stroud. It's going to be fascinating. All right, let's get back to uh, showdown Saturday and let's stay on the USC UCLA game because that's where we are right now. So, you you know, USC scores 48 points and yet the Trojans left a lot of points on the field. That is one of the scary things about this USC offense is that, you know, you, 48 points, like, okay, that's really pretty good, but gosh, it really should have been in the low 60s. Uh, and you also had the special teams disasters for USC two missed field goals under 35 yards in length. So that's six points the Trojans left on the field. And then uh, a failed fourth down uh, in the red zone, uh, another Brendan Rice dropped pass. That's, like there's always one there's always one each game um so usc left points on the field against arizona when it scored 45 should have had in the mid to upper 50s and really usc should have scored at least 60 in this game
1: yeah i mean you you hit the two nails on the head if there's two guys who are the most happy to have been bailed out by a win it's it, it was dennis lynch and Brendan Rice, who's Dennis Lynch's short game? What's going on there? Why your long game is better than your short game? What's going on?
0: Uh, he needs to, to talk to Phil Mickelson. That flop shot from the bottom. I mean, there's if there's
1: one thing he is doing well, it's his pregame outfits. I, I Caleb Williams gets all the hype for being the fashion icon. I gotta say, if you've looked at Dennis Lynch's uh, pregame outfits, wild, wild.
0: Um, I don't want wildness but, from a field goal kicker. I want I want steady production, baby.
1: <laughs> that's the problem oh you're right they, they, yes, left a lot of points out. they left a lot of points out and especially when you have a team where everyone knows your weakness is defense yep yeah, you you need to score as many points as possible all the points and uh it's it's those errors that you know if USC is lucky enough to keep the hot streak going and they face the elite of the elite come January they they're gonna need to score every time
0: All right, now, one of the interesting things about USC in the UCLA game, I'm not looking ahead, I'm just focusing on this uh, UCLA game in review. You know, we we worried from a USC perspective that, you know, Travis Dye being out, that was really going to hurt, it's going to make a difference. Two things on that front. One, Austin Jones, you know, who transferred from Stanford, like he's the other Pac-12 transfer running back. He played really well, rushed over 100 yards, was very dependable in this game. But the other thing is, so with die going out, another guy who had been injured before the die injury and then came back in this game at full strength really seemed to compensate for Dye's absence. That's Jordan Addison. Um, back to being the wide receiver one, the, the alpha male, the alpha dog, 11 catches, 178 yards, and he just completely distorted the field. And he drew so much attention from the UCLA secondary that it opened up opportunities for Kyle Ford and Taj Washington and the other USC receivers, that was the compensation for the Travis Dye injury. That was the substituted value uh, in place of Travis Dye that USC absolutely needed to get over the top. And it's worth noting that Mario Williams, you know, the, the, the second best wide receiver on the team, he briefly appeared in this game, but he was clearly not physically up to par. Really very similar with Eric Gentry, the linebacker, Made an early appearance, but it was clear, just not physically strong enough to play a lot of snaps, provide a lot of production. So Jordan Addison uh being able to come back full speed, that really saved USC's bacon in this game.
1: It definitely did. Uh and you know, funny, we talked last week about Austin Jones, and I I projected um much more of the passing game involving Relique Brown, and we saw him a little bit, but austin jones even we saw him consistently casting catching passes out of the backfield he did it all uh it, it seemed as if this usc offense didn't miss a step uh, and don't get it twisted travis die was there on the sideline lincoln talks about his impact goes goes far beyond the field he's he's somebody that you know on a team where a lot of players hadn't played last season together and it really was a smorgasbord of a, Of talent from across the country this is somebody who everyone looked to as as a heart and a uniter and a leader and he's still there making his impact on the sideline Uh, but the the running game austin jones stepped up in a big way
0: and uh jordan addison welcome back welcome back indeed one point to make about austin jones is that you know lincoln riley did not play him a lot because travis first because travis Dye is so good but also Lincoln Riley makes it a point, and it's part of why he's such a successful coach. He makes it a point that if you're a play player, it's not just what you do with the ball. You know, if you're a skill position guy, as Austin Jones is, you have to block, you have to provide pass protection. And so the, to, a couple of things with Austin Jones here. First, the fact that Lincoln Riley didn't play Austin Jones a lot during the during most of the season, that left him fresh for this game. So that's one thing that he was not just available; he was fresh, and and that really mattered. The other thing is, he was fine in pass protection. Like you did not see Austin Jones whiffing on blocks, failing to carry out his non-ball carrier assignments. So he he evolved, like he improved, and he brought his A game at just the right time uh, for USC. So a lot of the little nuances of the season, in terms of you know players not playing as much. But then responding to this moment, those so Austin Jones was certainly an example on offense. Corey Darwin Ford, Barlow's another example right Reds. there. Darwin Barlow as well. And it's it's really a lot of, of the same, same dynamics apply there. Yes. So so guys were ready to step up lower on the depth chart, getting their chance late in the season. That's part of the alchemy of a championship team, a championship season. So Alex, um, let's look at the UCLA side. Now, this was a crusher, not just because of losing to USC in a big game with the Pac-12 title on the line, but, you know, big picture, this was the fifth year of Dorian Thompson Robinson being UCLA quarterback. I mean, he was, he quarterbacked most of the team's games back in 2018. You know, he took, he, he's a fifth year player no red shirt. This was just, you know, he had the extra year of pandemic eligibility. So that's why he was able to play five straight seasons. That's, that's the length of Chip Kelly's tenure. So like for Chip Kelly and DTR, this was like the big last ride. This was the big final showdown. Can we finally win a conference championship at UCLA, which hasn't won a conference championship since Cade McNown back in 1998. I mean, just UCLA spent five years trying to get to this point with its coach, with its quarterback, and you lose. And next year, UCLA is going to be in full, full on rebuilding mode. So, like, you know, it's bad enough from a UCLA vantage point to lose to the hated Trojans. But, like, UCLA is probably not going to be in this position playing for a conference championship for a long time.
1: Especially when you consider that they're moving, potentially moving to the Big Ten.
0: Absolutely, that they're, they're going to have to go through not just USC but Michigan, Ohio State if they want to win a conference title. That's absolutely true. It's not quite yeah. the same as having to go through Utah. Uh, for all all due respect to Utah, but you know Utah is not the same as Michigan, Ohio State, and I don't think we have to explain that very much. Mm-hmm. So you know, no, no, so you
1: definitely don't, you definitely don't, and and uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see, you know, especially how patient will UCLA fans and from. You know front office executives be with chip kelly during another rebuild
0: it 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 will be and uh it really puts into perspective what lincoln riley has been able to do in one year you know chip kelly needed chip kelly needed five years to build ucla to this point with dtr lincoln riley in one year overhauls a four and eight roster and he beats chip kelly you know with all with all cards uh, on the table. So, pretty fascinating there. Before our uh, first uh, commercial break, Alex, just let's reflect on what USC has done to this point. And, you know, preseason in the uh, Pac 12 media poll in late July uh, and in the preseason uh, coaches poll and the preseason AP poll, it was all the same. USC picked third behind Utah and Oregon. So, USC was unanimously picked in the Pac 12 media poll, the coaches poll. And the AP poll, USC was picked to miss the Pac-12 championship game. So USC has exceeded that standard. As we reflect on, you know, how we were all wondering how this season was going to play out back in the summer, back in the off season, and here we are uh, with USC having that spot in the Pac-12 championship game. You know, was there something that national commentators and Pac-12 media voters? missed or undersold about this USC team or was it pretty honest actually to have USC third and like that was the rational response and like yeah Oregon and Utah should have been picked ahead of USC how, how do you come down on that question
1: I think it's two things I think it's one it was completely reasonable to assume that this team things wouldn't be gelling immediately I think uh, you know who knows what this defense looks like not a lot of recruiting Uh, two or three losses was projected and reasonable projection at the time. I don't think anyone really knew. We knew Caleb Williams was good. Did we know he was this good that he could elevate this offense and these players to put up nearly 50 every game? Uh, I don't think we did. And we're learning quick and he may just win a Heisman for
0: us all to learn. I would only say that, uh, you know, the, the one the one USC game which truly surprised me. You know, not many USC games have surprised me this season. But the one game which truly surprised me was, I think, the most important one. And it's something that I talked about, you know, on, on Trojans Wire, which I edit, and also on the media shows that I do on YouTube uh, every week. The thing that I said throughout the offseason, the Oregon State game was the key. Because you get out of Corvallis with a win. It sets up the rest of the season. It sets up that month of November in which USC, you know, does not have to leave Los Angeles. So no plane flights, no, ro- no, no, you know real road trips. UCLA was a quote unquote road game, but it's basically, you know, a, a, being played in their backyard. Um, getting through that Oregon state game, but was the key and USC did it with a, a, an out of nowhere defensive performance. Like even in hindsight, like how really, how did usc not only hold oregon state to 14 but get four interceptions uh, to yeah. win that game i think in retrospect you know you, we didn't know that oregon state's quarterback situation was going to be that bad but nevertheless mm-hmm. when, you know when, when seeing mm-hmm. how this usc defense has been torched over the past month allowing just 14 points to to any pac12 team uh, is a huge surprise so that that remains the game that i did not see coming like i i was an optimist about usc going into the season because i did think that caleb williams was going to be the real meal deal uh but i did not you know think that usc had a a prayer if it if it scored just 17 points as it did against oregon state that's the real surprise of the usc season
1: i mean that that's the one game where you can look at and say "Whoa, maybe uh maybe there is a future in which both sides are dominant but the, that's the real outlier from this season, and that's great. That's you know you need one of those games uh, to show that you you can do it both ways.
0: And, and it certainly offset the Utah loss, a game that USC probably should have won but didn't. The fact that it won the Oregon State game, which you know based on offensive performance, it probably should have lost. Those two games canceled each other out, and USC was able to enter November with one loss and go to the Pac-12 championship game. All right, on the other side of this break, we'll talk about Utah and Oregon. But first, hey, college football fans, it's Thanksgiving week, it's rivalry week. Alabama, Auburn, the Iron Bowl, Michigan, Ohio State, they're all coming, Clemson, South Carolina, no matter where you are across the United States, these this is the week for rivalry games. So we know that you want to take advantage of Ticket Smarter and their mobile app following Buying college football rivalry game tickets online requires trust. Ticket Smarter has partnered with more than 100 universities as their official ticket resale marketplace. Hey, they've partnered with ESPN Events as an official ticket resale partner. And so if the best selection of NCAA football rivalry game tickets, Ticket Smarter makes sure fans from all over the country experience the power and excitement of college football rivalry week live. Purchase your Rivalry Game tickets quickly, securely, and at the best prices on the secondary market with the Ticket Smarter mobile app or at ticketsmarter.com. And we have an additional offer this Rivalry Week for those listening to all our podcasts on the College Gridiron Coast to Coast Network. Take 5% off your purchase of $100 or more with our promo code GRIDIRON22. That's GRIDIRON22 for 5% off your order of $100 or more And it's not just for Rivalry Week, it's next week for the conference championship games. And hey, if you wanna get to the Army-Navy game one week later uh, in mid-December, also for that one as well. So check out the selections and pricing now with Ticket Smarter, and remember our code, GRIDIRON22. Think smarter, Ticket Smarter. All right, so Alex, Utah, Oregon. So a very different world, a very different context. Uh, compared to USC, UCLA. And of course, you know, I was editing stories and doing post-game media with uh, USC, UCLA, but like I had a, I had a, my eye on the, the TV screen in the background and pretty much uh, every time I looked up, someone was committing a turnover, a, a bad offensive play. And it was just a, a, a long, hard slog uh, for the Utes and the Ducks. And you know, Bo Nix played obviously nowhere near close to 100 percent, but it was really weird during the week, Alex. You know, all the cryptic, uh, indirect comments by Dan Lanning and Oregon players suggested that Bo Nix was not going to play. I never truly thought Nix was not going to play. And that's because he came back into the Washington game at the end.
1: Yeah. at you know, the enemy.
0: After his injury. I always thought he was going to play. That didn't mean it. That didn't mean I thought he was going to be effective, but I always thought he was going to play. And you know, even like sixty percent of Bo Nix is better than one hundred percent of backup Ty Thompson, and it was just enough to get Oregon over the finish line.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when we were watching the game, I was thinking about our conversation last week, and I'd mentioned that I thought. You know, if if Oregon was going to win, it had to be through Bo Nix. Whereas if Utah was going to lose, it 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 was going to be a team effort. It wouldn't just be on Cam Rising. You know, they, or more importantly, they didn't it didn't solely rely on Cam Rising for Utah to win. What I didn't account for is that it would be on Cam Rising for Utah to lose. I mean, he arguably has his
0: worst game, whew, That it's I can his worst remember. game of the season, and he picked the worst possible time for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, turnover, like turnover, hungry, feeding the entire defense think he didn't really care if the ball hit the ground as long as somebody caught it.
0: Yeah. Don't um, feed the
1: ducks as they say. Damn Risey didn't listen. Ducks. He didn't. Uh, I mean, but we also, we, we didn't see Tavion Thomas. I mean, he, he ran the wall almost 20 times. Didn't seem like he could get five yards at all. Um, there, there was no running game. Nothing really got going on the offense for Utah. Defensively, they they couldn't even, you know, this is a Bo Nix that we know he's not healthy. Sure, they got the turnover, but we never really saw them create too much pressure. Um, it was just, it wasn't a good performance from Utah. It, it, they chose the worst game of the season to take off. Um and, and Oregon didn't need to be their best, which was, was weird. We we thought they'd have to be elite to beat Utah, and they they were able to get away with a lot of sloppy play.
0: Let me ask you this: You know, Oregon lost to Washington the previous week. Now, it's not always the case that you know, you'll have big games in consecutive weeks, as Oregon has had. Uh, you know, usually you have a big game, and then you play. You know, your down market conference opponents the next few weeks and then you have another big game it's not very common to have two really big games stacked together one week to the next do you think the fact that they lost to washington just last week and then you come back and you play utah the next week and so the the level of athleticism the level of quality going from michael penix a fully healthy michael penix to a you know not 100 cam rising you remember he got injured in in uh Late October didn't play against Washington State. Do you think that playing Washington and then Utah back to back really helped Oregon's defense improve? Like, it's like you you know you're you're going against uh, an mm. elite pitcher. You're like you're going against Justin Verlander on Wednesday, and then you go up against uh, you know Ho- Jose Garcia, you know the, the number five starter the next night. So that those those slower fastballs look like cream puffs. It, do you, do you ascribe Uh, and assign a lot of importance to that dynamic for Oregon's success.
1: I mean, I, I see the point you're making. I would just argue that, you know, I don't think anyone knew that that UW Oregon game was going to be what it was until it went down. And when I watched this Oregon Utah game, I felt it wasn't so much that Oregon won. It was that Utah lost. It was, it was Utah really, I felt just took themselves out of it. Almost, almost every step, except maybe the third quarter was good for them. Uh, but you can't, you can't, you can't win it all in one, one quarter, but
0: you can, but not this one of the other, one of the other big takeaways I got from this game. And again, I didn't watch it closely, but like, I know that Cam rising did not play very well at all. And that is, you know, it not only affirms the theme that, you know, for the most part road quarterbacks in the pack 12 this year have not been very good. And Caleb Williams has been the exception to the rule. You know, he's the guy who's played road games at a high level, but the other quarterbacks, you know, DTR uh, at Oregon, uh, Cam Rising here uh, at Oregon, uh, you know, weren't at their best. That's been one key realm in which Caleb Williams has separated himself from other uh, Pac 12 quarterbacks. But the other takeaway I have is that, you know, Cam Rising was the best quarterback in the Pac 12 last year. And so just, you know, taking in and absorbing what happened in this game and and how uh, inadequate rising has been in Utah's big road games this season. Back in week one at Florida, then in in the middle of the season against UCLA, where DTR vastly outplayed him. Like rising in the biggest road games of Utah's season hasn't really played at a very high standard. And that tells me, boy, I thought quarterback play last year in the Pac-12 was bad. I probably underestimated it. Even as down as I was on the quarterback play in the league one year ago, you know, with Oregon having uh, Anthony Brown and uh, you know DTR not being nearly as good uh, as he was this year, man, the Pac-12 quarterback play was even worse last year than I already thought, and I already thought it was at rock bottom. I, I, I still needed to dig about five or six feet uh, further below the the earth's surface.
1: Yeah. Things were ugly last year. I mean, we also, to your point about Caleb playing well, the way games. Sure. You know, I, I heard it mentioned in the week that he did not have an extensive knowledge of the USC UCLA rivalry. But one thing that any USC person knows is, is the Rose Bowls, the home away from home. That's not an away game. That's, that's USC territory.
0: Oh well, Uh, you know, hey, hey, Alex, you do know that Ohio State fans listening to get off my pond are going to say, "Oh, that's an argument for CJ Stroud." (laughs) Did you think about that?
1: I, I did not. Uh,
0: Got to watch yourself, uh, there, buddy. To my
1: other point, uh, the point still stands, though. You're right. Every other (laughs) way game he's played, he's played almost spectacularly, minus uh, the Oregon state game we mentioned where we saw the offense struggle
0: yeah that 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 was his clunker uh and the defense was somehow able to rescue him all right so uh we're gonna talk a little bit about the pac-12 championship game obviously the matchup isn't set but we're gonna go through the scenarios for that deal with some hypotheticals but of course the game that feeds into those hypotheticals is oregon at oregon state it's the most fascinating Game between two Pac-12 teams this week. Now you have USC Notre Dame. That's a a, you know more more of a national game, Um, but in terms of you know the Pac-12 race, uh, which is what we're focusing on here, Oregon Oregon State is the centrally important game because if Oregon wins, Oregon is in. Oregon will meet USC in the Pac-12 title game on Friday, December second. If Oregon loses in Corvallis to the Beavers. Then it gets really interesting because Utah would still be in it. Utah, if uh, Utes win, Oregon loses to Oregon State, and UCLA beats Cal, and Washington beats Washington State. If all those things happen, Utah is in. So you know, people might think Utah, you know, has no chance. Well, first, Utah is going to beat Colorado. Like we can just—that is a—that is a guarantee. That's a given. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then Washington versus Washington state, you know, that's going to be a very competitive game, or at least it figures to be like that. Maybe it may be a tiny Washington's maybe might might be a very tiny favorite in that game, but Washington state's been playing some ball. Washington state uh, cleaned up Jaden Delora, former Cougar uh, last week. So that's not going to be easy in Pullman uh, for the Huskins, but still a very reasonable chance that Washington could win that game. And then UCLA, you know, should beat Cal. Uh, and I, it wouldn't be extraordinarily surprising if UCLA packs it in and melts uh, and just, you know, decides to mail it in. because We've seen the Bruins do that a lot over the years. But UCLA should beat Cal. USC is a vastly better team than Cal. So Utah's path to the Pac-12 title game, hardly far-fetched. Again, you wouldn't necessarily say it's likely, but much stranger things, far stranger things have happened. And so the centerpiece really is, Oregon, Oregon State. You know, Oregon can lock it up, or Oregon can lose to the Beavers and and leave this matter in question. You know, in terms of the other Pac-12 games of Thanksgiving weekend. So, Alex, as we size up this matchup, and it is in Corvallis, the Beavers are hosting, uh, and Oregon State did beat Oregon two years ago in Corvallis. Obviously, you didn't have Bo Nix, you didn't have Dan Lanning. That was a Mario Cristobal game, but. You know, So Nick's comes into Corvallis, you know, wounded, far less than his best. But, of course, Oregon State's quarterback situation is a nightmare. Ben Goldbranson is the quarterback. He was the backup to Chance Nolan. He's been playing for the Beavers the past month, month and a half or so. Um, what, what do you make of this game? Uh, do you think it's going to fit the conventional wisdom in terms of, man, this is just going to be a defensive slugfest, a lot like what we saw with Utah and Oregon? Do you think the offenses are going to surprise us in uh, the rivalry game formerly known as the Civil War?
1: Well, you made an interesting point about
0: Oregon's defense consistently getting
1: better towards the end of the season. I think we're going to see that trend continue. I'm also going to think we are see Bo Nix continue to get back to how he was playing a few weeks ago pre-injury. He's surely not going to be 100% yet, uh, but I think we're going to see, you know, his mobility apparently isn't an issue. His O-line had no trouble protecting him in Utah. Um, I think well, his accuracy is gonna return. Uh, and and what about and his
0: win. what about what about quarterback keepers and being able to sprint up the middle for 15, 20 yards? You think that's gonna be there for him?
1: I mean, that's an important part of his game, but I, I think at this point they know they win and they're in. So, you know, play it moderately safe, keep him in the pocket, let him let him air it out and just get the win so that when you do have to go to Vegas. You're f- full on ready to go, fully healthy. But I, uh, to the Pac-12 championship point, I do think it's going to be it's going to be a Trojan Ducks championship in Vegas. All
0: right, let's pick up on the point that you made that you think Oregon can play a play it safe on offense. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing with that. I'm just, let's just explore this point because you know there's a valid argument to make for that approach, and that is that Oregon State's quarterback situation isn't very good you know, that if you're Oregon, you can win this game playing safe. Like you don't have to ask too much of Bo Nix and, you know, precisely so that you you should, you
1: should be able to, it isn't a way game. Yeah. Yeah. You should be able to,
0: but so the idea that, you know, okay, Oregon state's not going to score much. We don't have to ask Bo Nix to do everything. So, so you're, so, you know, that, that is informing your analysis in terms of Oregon, not needing to take too many risks. All right, so if Oregon doesn't take too many risks, you know one thing Dan Lanning really loves to do. We've seen it a lot this season. Of course, it burned him against Washington, going for it on fourth downs in the middle third of the field. So in this game, let's say the scoreboard is is really tight, and Oregon has let's say a fourth and two at midfield, um, you know, and not you know so not trailing, but but not not leading comfortably either. Let's just say it's a one score game. Uh, And It's not like a a kneel down or victory formation situation. You know, it's in the middle portion of the game. Oregon has fourth and two at midfield. Should the Ducks, you know, trust Bo Nix, even though he can't run full speed or should Oregon punt in, in, in that kind of situation?
1: I mean, there's so there's so many variables that go into it.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, I mean, like if it's 20 to 14, maybe it's different from how you do it. If it's nine to three, you know, and if and, and and maybe there's a wind factor. If we kind of take all those extra variables out and we just you know say, like, it's a generic situation in which, you know, there's no wind um you know the, the, well, I, think, I think i just say
1: this it it goes without saying that you got to do you you have to get this win and if it matters it means you know being risky do it but at the same time you are winning this game for the purpose of playing another game in Vegas and if your team's already banged up when you're going to have to be at your best realize hey if you're up by 14 maybe you don't go for it uh if you're up by 10 and and your defense yeah. has Well, we're talking about
0: – yeah, we're talking about a tie. Like if you're up 10, like that's pretty easy that you punt away and you say, hey, Oregon State, dare, we dare you to score two touchdowns. But if it's really close, like if it's a – But also, of, if it's a matter of – If it's a
1: matter of bonix has been able to move it all game, whereas they're facing strict three and outs, yeah, I'm saying go for it.
0: So, oh, okay. So it's so like, this opens up a line of thought that maybe in the first half, you played a little bit cautious. You want to see what bonix can do before you trust him too much. And, and then basically, so you play like a quarter, 20 minutes, a quarter and a half, and, and only then would you maybe risk it in terms of a, a fourth and two at midfield. But in like the first quarter, you punt, you don't ask Bo, Nick, Bo Nix to get you know, uh, first downs at midfield in a fourth down situation. You just kind of settle into the game, see what bonix has to offer, you know, in normal possessions, normal down and distance situations. And then maybe if you see, if you like what you see in terms of his mobility and how he's processing the game, then you get into late second quarter, early third quarter, and then you start trusting him. That seems to be the outline that you're uh, creating for us.
1: That, I mean, that's, that was my thought process.
0: And a very good one at that. I, 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 you know, and I think that just we kind of fleshed it out for our listeners here on get off my pile and going into the tactics there. All right, let's flip this matchup other side of the ball. So when Oregon state uh, has the ball, um, you know, Jonathan Smith, like we know that he's a good coach. We know that he's a good tactician, but he doesn't have quarterback. So let's, let's look at it from Oregon state's point of view. Like, If you're Jonathan Smith, do you think that you have to be riverboat gambler in this game because Oregon's the better team? Or if you're Jonathan Smith, knowing that Trent Bray, your defensive coordinator, is a stud, uh, he's been the best defensive coordinator in the Pac-12 this season, do you say, if you're Oregon State, hey, I'm putting this all on the defense to win this game? I mean, not that the offense won't have to do a few things here and there, but like I'm fundamentally trusting my defense to make the significant plays. Or do you say, hey, offense, hey, Ben Golbranson, like, you know, we know that you're not ultra prolific, but, hey, you need to get this fourth and two. How are you looking at it from an Oregon State perspective?
1: My fear about relying on the defense for all of it is, how did that that work out for Robert Sala, the New York Jets, on Sunday? Because their defense played lights out. And their offense got about 21 inches in the second half of like almost total offense. 21 inches of play barely. It was your defense wins championships, but your offense has to do something. Even Peyton Manning, we love to talk about Peyton Manning. Had five neck surgeries in the Super Bowl and got carried by his defense. He still had to go in there. His final play is a two point conversion. It was successful. It was a slant route. Right. Throw it. Uh, Your defense. This is the thing. We know Oregon's offense is a little hurt. Oregon State's defensive play calling and scheming has been elite. Capitalize. Oregon State's offense, if, if you get the ball with short uh, field, you know, short field to go, utilize it, you know, take advantage. Um, I don't know if it's going to happen though. I, I I don't see just there's too many troubles on the offensive
0: side of the ball. All right. Uh, We're going to talk about Pac-12 championship game scenarios and matchups. But first, hey, with the college football season heading toward rivalry week and then conference championship game week and then the bowl season, you need a sports book with integrity and longevity that you can rely on, like BetUS. Did you know that BetUS has been pioneers in the sportsbook industry for over 25 years, thriving and paying their loyal customer base quickly and securely? Well, we want you to go to BETUS.com take advantage of an offer we have on our shows with college gridiron coast to coast you'll receive a 125 sign up bonus by using our code coast22 that's coast22 you get 100 put 100 dollars in get an additional 125 to play with put 200 in you get 250 and so on so that that is that is the math at BetUS. we also have the nfl and of course, the NBA, college basketball, we have feast week, you know, all the college basketball, Thanksgiving week, uh, preseason, you know, early season tournaments. So a lot of games and also a lot of day games. So, you know, you can bet during the day, not just at night. Lots of action all through the day and the World Cup as well. You know, So early morning action, uh, betting throughout the day, facilitated at betus.com. So we want you to be with us for the remainder of the college football season, but for anything else under the sun, check them out at BETUS.com. And remember, our 125% match bonus for initial signups with our College Gridiron Coast to Coast code, COAST22. That's COAST22. US, You bet. You win. You get paid. All right, Alex. So Pack 12 championship game, it could be USC-Utah, it could be USC-Oregon, it could be USC-Washington. Let's just toss those around in terms of like, what's the matchup? Okay, you've heard, You think it's going to be Oregon. Is that the best matchup? Or do you want a USC-Utah rematch? Or do you want Caleb Williams and Michael Penix just lighting up Las Vegas, chucking the ball all around Allegiant Stadium, Three very different matchups in terms of the styles, uh, but they they all have great entertainment potential. So uh, which one do you think it would be the best matchup for the Pac-12, for television, for Alex Blau? So the most important thing to me going into this Pac-12
1: championship is how can we get the Pac-12 into the CFP? And the best shot is USC. And for that, I think it has to be either Oregon or Utah. I think if you bring in Washington, even though they are highly ranked, and you know Michael Penix Jr. has been lighting it up, I think it plays into that, that East Coast bias that I've mentioned. Of you know the Pac-12 for years has been viewed as a weak conference, and frankly, UW, you know they, they did you know they went to the CFP, they had success a few years ago, but recently I don't think they've been viewed as a program that is elite in the country. Uh, and I think you know if that's who our Pac-12 championship comes down to, we're going to see a, a lot of a lot of uh, people who operate the polls, a lot of just college football fans, a lot of media outlets come out and say, yeah, that was arguably the weakest playoff game and play a champion conference championship, sorry, out of the whole weekend. Um, Utah USC I think would be fascinating it could be a super interesting revenge game opportunity for Lincoln Riley to say, Hey, uh, these are the guys that got us by one point and we'll see if we can get them back. And for Utah, you know, can you ruin, can you shatter those dreams, especially if USC beats Notre Dame this weekend, that would be a big dagger in the heart of any CFP chances. Um, and then if Oregon wins out, you know, I think they're also in play for new year six, uh, new year's Eve six bowl game. If they, if they beat USC, uh, especially again, if USC is on is uh
0: oh, well, is, if, has if that one loss. Whoever beats USC in the Pac 12 title game will go to the Rose Bowl. I mean, that's that's how it works that the, as Pac 12 championship, uh, the Pac 12 champion, because the Utah, uh, Oregon, Washington will not make the playoffs, so they will go they would go straight to the Rose Bowl. This does bring up a point that um, USC, if it wins one of the next two games, either Notre Dame or the Pac 12 title game. Doesn't have to win both. Just one of the two. USC will play in a New Year's Six Bowl. If it wins, if it wins out, it's going to the playoff. If it wins the Pac-12 title game but loses to Notre Dame, then it's going to the Rose Bowl. If USC beats Notre Dame, but then loses the Pac-12 title game, then it's going to the Cotton Bowl. So, you know, for USC, it's it's a there's a real all or nothing uh, feel in that. Two wins gets USC to the playoff. 0 and 2, losing to Notre Dame and in the Pac-12 title game, USC would fall all the way out of the New Year's Six. So, like 1 and 1 guarantees the New Year's Six, but 0 and 2, which is you know of course possible, that would be uh, a, a dramatic last moment tumble uh, for a team which is currently 10 and 1 and has so much to play for. So let's briefly deal with uh, the USC Notre Dame game, Alex. Um, Obviously, you know, it, because Notre Dame has played well the past month to get to eight and three to get nationally ranked. It feels like a bigger deal because uh, a month, a month and a half ago, Notre Dame lost at home to Stanford. Still can't believe that happened. I mean, it it's really hard to believe, you know, Stanford's just been been losing left and right. Um, so it's a much better Notre Dame team. How uh, confident slash worried should USC be uh, heading into this game against Notre Dame?
1: No, I think they're excited. I think, I think this is a USC team that wants their opponents at their best, especially because they're trying to make that national statement. And, you know, three weeks in, I think they were worried. Oh my God, we're going to be ending it with a, with a, a stinker of a Notre Dame team. Uh, and I know, especially the fan base wants this, the fan base views Notre Dame as one of the real rivals, you know, UCLA of course and Notre Dame, I think those are the big two. And, and it's been a minute in, uh, you know, Revenge tastes so sweet since these USC fans have had a little bit, and I think they want a little more. They, especially, they want to see Notre Dame at their best, and it, I think it's the best look for the program. They, uh, I, I think USC views this as the best opportunity. Uh,
0: now, I think I think if from a USC perspective, if you're if you're worried about one thing in this game, you know Notre Dame has blocked I think seven punts this year, if not eight. Uh, Notre Dame has a tremendous special teams unit, and USC does not have a special teams coordinator well, at all. Good thing and we USC don't. Good special thing. Special teams. USC special teams were horrible against UCLA, as we mentioned. So, like, that's the thing that USC folks should be worried about: that that Notre Dame could block not only one kick, but maybe even two, and the Irish could get points without their offense uh, doing much of anything. That's you know that's what set them up well in their win over clemson that really to me is the big thing that usc needs to be worried about against the irish
1: yeah i don't think any trojans have plans on punting
0: a lot in this game uh but that's one way to avoid it (laughs) you never do you never do it does bring up the point though that like if usc has a fourth and three at midfield in the first quarter do you go for it just because hey we're scared of punting the ball or you know what? You actually have to try to punt the no. ball away and make you make Notre Dame drive down the field with, you know, Drew Pine, who's not an elite quarterback to say the very least. I don't
1: think you see a team at this caliber play with any sort of fear. I, th- I think they say until they prove, until we prove that it's 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 a weakness, especially in this game. You know,
0: we'll do it. <laughs> Uh, the other, I think, the other really big uh, key for USC in terms of being able to win this game is, you know, don't get dominated up front because Notre Dame's offensive line struggled for much of the season, uh, but really in the past five weeks or so has looked a lot more like a typical smash mouth Notre Dame offensive line. Uh, you know, blasted Boston College the way a good team should, scored scored big against Navy the way a good team should. Uh, Notre Dame's looked, you know, like a a real heavyweight team certainly on its offensive line and so can USC avoid the Irish from just mashing them to the extent that Notre Dame holds the ball for 38 40 minutes dominates time of possession and keeps Caleb Williams off the field I'm thinking Alex that is really Notre Dame Notre Dame's biggest path to victory along with blocking a few kicks
1: i mean the special teams play is definitely an interesting point we've seen special teams come to bite usc in the butt so many times this season even even this
0: weekend and and it just that like nor anything notre dame can do to relieve the burden on its offense to have to drive the ball and score like that is that is what the irish want and uh We will see just how everything lines up in Los Angeles. And it's going to be Chris Fowler's first uh, USC game this year. He hasn't called a USC game yet under Lincoln Riley. Finally, we get Fowler and Herbie. ABC, primetime, 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific. It's going to be a show. And, Alex, as you well know, first USC Notre Dame game in L.A. since 2018 because the pandemic wiped out and canceled 2020 edition. I know that you're going to be hyped for it.
1: Oh, I'm I'm beyond excited. Uh, this is this is definitely a revenge match.
0: It is, and and the stakes are supremely high for USC and Notre Dame wants to spoil the party. It's going to be great fun. All right, folks. So hey, we're we're winding down the journey on our Pac-12 season. Next week uh, we're going to have more games to review. We're going to have a Pac-12 championship game to preview. I think we're also going to talk about you know coach rankings, quarterback rankings uh, for the the Pac-12 season, so a lot next week, but we thank you for listening this week to get off my pile. I'm part of the College Gridiron Coast-to-Coast Network, whether it's Alex's favorite, Pigskin Skin and Burnt Ends with Patrick Netherton, or Big 12 Breakdown with Tyler Jones, or Florida Football Insider Jason Powers, or Yards and Stripes, hey, Army-Navy right around the corner. They follow the Academies, Uh, Mark Rogers' Big Ten Paradigm. Hey, You want to stay tuned to all our shows uh, at College, go down coast to coast. Find us on Red Circle, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast. So, for Alex Plow, this is Matt Zemek. Thanks for joining us. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, enjoy your weekend. We'll see you next week here on Get Off My Pile.